Jodcast, Exploding with Opinions, with George Bendo, Fiona Healy, Monique Hansen, Benjamin Chaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast. September 2016, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to Jodcast. Today, I'm joined in the studio with Fiona and Monique. Hello. Hi, George. Hello. And in the show this time, Renee Breton answers your astronomical questions, and we interview Dr. Michelle Lochner about the classification of supernovae with machine learning. But before all of that, Ben will be talking to Megan Argo in this month's Jod Bite. Okay, so our Jod Bite this month is with uh, Jod Castorwart, Dr. Megan Argo. So, hi, Megan. Hello. This is a bit of a weird one for me because normally, <laughs> normally I, when I'm interviewed, I don't interview very often, but when I do, I usually plan it quite carefully and I have a list of questions and I'm, you know, I tick them off as we go and make sure every point's covered and describe the person I'm talking to and where they've worked and everything. I don't think I need to do that with you so much. <laughs> I think we need to have a serious talk about what it is you're doing with your life. <laughs> yeah, funny my boss said that to me just the other day. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a bit of a sad yet happy sort of event that's about to come up why don't you tell us what's happening with you well okay so i yeah old time jogcast listeners who've been with us from the beginning or anybody who's listened to the archive will know that i was there at the very beginning of the jogcast way back in 2006 and i've left manchester once before i went off to australia for three years and then i was two years in the netherlands and i came back again and now I've been back in Manchester three years and it's time for me to move on yet again. I'm not going quite as far this time. I'm only going basically up the road for people who don't know UK geography. I'm going to Preston, which is just up the M6. It's about, what, 30, 35 miles from here, something like that. So I'm not going too far, um, but I am leaving Manchester again for the time being. But you're saying living where you're living now, you'll still be sort of local to the area. You'll That's just have true. a bit of a longer commute. That's right, yeah. So I live not far from the, the Jodra Bank, the, the Lovell Telescope. So um, I'm going to stay there and I'm going to commute to Preston. So it's going to be a lot of driving. But it's an exciting change for me. I'm going to be doing some teaching, which uh, I'm quite looking forward to because I haven't done much teaching. And it's one of those things that's part of the academic career path is is doing some teaching, teaching undergraduates and helping the next generation of astronomers come through and actually learn the, the basics. Yeah. So is, is this a teaching? teaching post you're going to primarily primarily yes it is a teaching job although hopefully i'll be able to keep my hand in with some of the research that i've been doing here working on the, the nearby galaxies and working on e-merlin of course our network of telescopes that we run from jodra bank um, and yeah. i'll still be involved with that so but just to a, a lesser extent so will you still be doing you, you'll still be at jodra bank to some extent then you're not leaving us completely yeah that's true i will be um well when i can i'll be spending uh, some time at the observatory to yeah carry on some research and keep collaborating with the, the same people I've been collaborating with since um, I did my PhD, which is some years ago now. Because, yeah. um, of course, research projects, they often take a long time to complete. So you can't necessarily finish everything before you move to, to a different institute. So some of that stuff will still carry on. So there's plenty of overlap. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is it you're going to be teaching? Do you know yet? Yeah, so I'm going to be teaching um, first year astronomy, so the introductory astronomy module, which would be quite exciting because that's always good fun. So um, the students come to university knowing sort of A-level physics, maths, chemistry, maybe, uh, but they don't necessarily know a lot of astronomy formally anyway. So the first mm. year undergraduate astronomy is teaching them the basics of, of how the sky works, what the coordinate systems are, how spectra work and what the star is and what galaxy is. And it's there's a lot of basic stuff that's covered in there, but there's scope to take it further if, if people are interested as well. So yeah. 
I'm yeah. quite looking forward to that. Um, and you'll be taking them through the initial hell of actually converting between coordinate systems as well. Yeah, that'll be good fun. Yeah, a little bit of trigonometry in three dimensions required yeah. there, yeah, which nice is always... Spherical geometry. Yeah, Great way to start a degree. <laughs> of course, I'm going to have to go and brush up on this stuff too, but, you know, um, it's probably a good idea. So you've been with the Jodcast for a very long time now. and I've, In fact, yeah. I, before I even started studying astronomy at all, I, I used to listen to the Jodcast, so I knew your voice long before I ever met you. Wow. And back in those days, I had no idea that I'd actually be running the Jodcast. So I have to ask then, do you have, because I know I listen to Radio 4 a lot, and I have a mental image of what the presenters look like on the, yeah. on the Today programme. Did you have a mental image of what the Jodcast presenters look like? I did, yeah. Um, and when I actually <laughs> met you, you you kind of look similar to what your voice suggests you look like. Well, that's reassuring. Um, the other person, I, I, I recognise you by your voice long before I actually met you I was like that's Megan Argo's voice and then for a while we didn't we weren't introduced for a while but I knew who you were right and the other person was Matt Perver right who does not look like his voice at least <laughs> my, my brain didn't model him in in the way that he actually looked so that that was quite strange and yeah it was you know I've, lo- I've known you longer than you've known me so can you remember what what was the first thing you did for the Jodcast um, well, I remember having the first sort of planning meeting. So this was after Stuart came up with the original idea, Stuart and Dave Holt, they'd been talking for a while. Mm. And they'd had this idea and we had a planning meeting. It was in the tea room at the observatory. And there were probably about 20 odd people in the room. And we all sat down and we talked about, you know, ideas for, for the podcast and what we could possibly do and tried to work out, okay, who was going to do what. And the first bit of recording I actually did, I pretty sure was the news for the first episode the january 2006 episode of the jogcast wow and the reason I, I volunteered to do that in the first place was because um i'm a member of macclesfield astronomical society and at the time the meetings were at the observatory in, in the lecture room in the evenings and for that meeting at the observatory i was doing a quick roundup of what had been in the in the literature in the last month so that people could you know get an idea of what was going on in the professional circles mm. Um, so as I was doing it anyway for Macclesfield Astronomical Society, I volunteered to do it for the Jogcast. And I carried on doing that way longer than I was involved, uh, you know, running things for Macclesfield Astronomical Society. Uh, and it, yeah, it just kind of carried on. You even carried on after you left for the first time, didn't you? you were... I did. I Yeah, for quite a long, for the entire time I was in Australia. And for, I think for the first half of the time I was in the Netherlands as well, I carried on doing the news. So, so take me back to that first, you, you know, your first instance on the Jodcast. What, were you a PhD student at the time? I was, yeah. Um, Had you I, done any outreach before or was this a completely new thing for you? No, I've been doing some outreach. One of the reasons that I started getting involved with the outreach was because, to be quite honest, I had a pathological fear of public speaking. I hated standing in front of an audience. Right. And when I was a student, of course, the researchers were all at the observatory next to the the visitor centre. And it was quite a small visitor centre at the time, because around the same time I started my PhD, they demolished the old planetarium. And they'd actually taken out a lot of the old buildings as well. So the visitor centre was much smaller than it had been previously. Mm. And there were a lot of visitors who would come and there was not a lot there for them to do. There was a small exhibition, there was a shop and a cafe, but there wasn't a huge amount to do once you'd seen the telescope and been amazed by the all 76 metres of it. (laughs) Um, So one thing I started doing was because I knew knew the ladies who worked in the shop and they'd often say when I go over for lunch, they say, oh, Megan, can you just, this person over there has asked a question and we can't answer it because none of them were scientists. And they get asked questions all the time, but oh, what's the telescope looking at? And because they didn't know the answers. So when they saw me appear, they go, oh, Megan, can you just go talk to this person? And I thought, this is crazy talking to one person at a time like this. Why don't we bring back something that happened sort of 20 years ago, which is the Ask an Astronomer sessions, Mm 
where the public would sit around in, uh, they had an outdoor amphitheater there at the time, or we used to use a 3D theater indoors when it was raining. And the public would um, sit down and I talked to them for 10 minutes about the history of the telescope and about some of the research that went on and then asked them if they got any questions. So they could ask me, you know, any question that you ever wanted to ask an astronomer, but were too afraid to ask, uh, preferably astronomy related. Um, <laughs> and they'd, they'd ask questions. And it was really scary when I first started doing it but I got over that fear quite quickly when I realized you get the same questions pretty much every time you do it it's yeah. the same same things people want to know about what happened to Pluto is there a planet 10 um you know have you ever seen aliens these kind of questions there were obviously other questions as well the best one I ever had I think there was a 10 year old girl asked me how much power the motors drew on the level telescope wow. when it moves in azimuth I was like wow that's a brilliant question I have no idea <laughs> but I know who to ask stay there, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And I went off and found an engineer and came back and gave right. me the answer. I can't remember what the number was now. This was, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. But um, but that's how I got started in doing the public outreach. And that helped me get over that fear of public speaking, which has, you know, been a great benefit to me, you know, throughout the rest of everything else that I've done. But So that, that first time in the in the amphitheatre area, what sort of audience size did you did you have to deal with? It was probably somewhere between 40 and 50. That's quite daunting then for someone who's never done it before. Yeah. How did you feel? Absolutely petrified. (laughs) Do you think it showed in how you were, how you were speaking? I think at the the time it probably did. And to be honest, a lot of that fear has not gone away. I've just found better ways of dealing with it. Right. So I'm better capable of hiding that fear when I stand in front of an audience. Um, to the extent where people now don't believe me when I tell them that story about being petrified yeah. standing in front of an audience. So how do you deal with the stage fright then? Because you do quite large. You, you were recently Astrofets on, on the same bill as Brian May. That's right. Which yeah. must have drawn a huge crowd. How do you deal with a, the, an the, audience that They sounds? had a capacity audience in that room and it's it's uh, the Kensington Town Hall. There were 800 seats in that mm. room. Um, that was a bit scary. Um But to be honest, once you get to a certain point, the size of the audience doesn't matter. It's the same talk you've you've given before. And I was very confident in the material. Mm. So I knew that wasn't going to be a problem. And the audience in that particular environment, they're not going to have time to ask questions either. So it's usually the questions people get scared about. Oh, what if they ask me a question, something I don't know the answer to. But the more you do it, the more you realize that actually you do know what you're talking about. It's not a problem and you're fine. And it's, you know... And after a time, you just kind of get used to the feeling of, of fear and just become better able to deal with that thing. And it does take time. It took me a long time. But it was yeah. it was my PhD supervisor that suggested it in the first place. Who so was that? Uh, Alan Pedler, Professor Alan Pedler, who's retired now. But um, yeah, I told him that I was scared of speaking in public when I was a student. And he said, well, you're going to have to get over that if you're going to be a scientist because yeah. it goes with the job. You have to go to conferences and speak to the public. So, yeah. And I think in general, a little, a little bit of... Fear does help, but you should never go on completely calm. No, a little bit of adrenaline is a good thing. I think it keeps you on edge and keeps yeah. you on your toes, and yeah, it does help. I think. And keeps you to time as well because it sort of speeds you up. Sort of speeds you up a little bit as well. And yeah, stops you running over. I find that's right. It's it's a very um, it, it takes practice. I think for most people to actually give a talk to a particular time length and at a conference, yeah. that's normal, right? You go to a conference and you have a fifteen minute slot, of which you know twelve minutes you're supposed to speak, and the other three minutes have a questions. And there's usually somebody there keeping time. And if you start to run over, they'll, one, start waving at you. And if you keep going, they will get up and they will start moving towards you and (laughs) move you off the stage forcibly if you, if you get too bad, you know. Um, I've seen some very funny chairmen at conferences trying to handle that in different ways. Um, so keeping to time is, is a very, very useful skill. Yeah. It's a skill we've lost in the Jodcast recently because the shows (laughs) are. 
ended up being gone from being about 40, 50 minutes long to now about 90 in general. So, uh, well, you know, if people are, are still talking and it's still interesting, then... You well, know. I hope it is. Yeah. yeah. But no, I think audience size is a, is a weird thing because you, you, you kind of tempted to think that a bigger audience, the scarier it is. But I actually find smaller audiences much worse mm. because you're being judged by fewer people. You're more aware of each one of them's eyes. You can see their faces. And, and you get yeah. far worse questions from smaller audiences yeah. because it turns into a discussion rather than a more formal question-answer, yeah. question-answer thing. Some of the, the longest discussions I've ever had have been after things like um, University of the Third Age groups, um, doing those for evening talks for the public. Mm. Um, they are really interesting people and usually they're they're more subject specialists so you'll go to a a university of the third age group who are science and engineering people so they'll have had careers in science and engineering and they're now retired that's what Mm. university of the third age is and they're still interested they want to learn and yeah they ask some really deep questions and you really have to think about how to answer those they're very different to a school audience you did your PhD here, then you did. Did you do a postdoc here as well? I I did some of a postdoc here. Yeah, I stayed on for about eighteen months before I moved on. And then you went over to Parks. Uh, to Perth, to, to Perth, Western Australia. Yeah, right. Parks is on the east coast. Yeah, but you did use Parks when you went over there, didn't you? I did. Parks is um, most of the time it runs as a single dish instrument, so it uses uh, it's used to look at things like pulsars. Yeah, but it can and does participate in the Australian very long baseline interferometer set up so when they do that kind of thing then parks is part of the network and they need people on site to run the telescope so yeah i've done a couple of sessions there where i was there for a week and me and another observer would do 12 hour shifts each running the telescope and i usually do the night shift because it meant i could play outside with the camera as well take photographs of the night sky while the telescope was running um they have a dead man switch so you have to run in and press a button every 15 minutes so you can run outside with the camera and then run back in and press the button then run back outside grab the camera set it up where you want it come back in press the button run back outside and set your exposure running and then yeah i've been there it's like a higher frequency lost yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's an interesting place and the kangaroos are very friendly I never saw one. I didn't see a single kangaroo when I went over, which I was completely disappointed (laughs) by. I saw lots of posters with pictures of different creatures on and say, if you see any of these things, just run. Right, yeah, there's a lot of poisonous nasties Uh, around there. Um, But yeah, no no wildlife at all I saw when I was there. (laughs) But you must have got some great pictures. I mean, that telescope at night looks beautiful. It's a stunning telescope, yeah. It's... um... It's very, very photogenic. Single telescopes tend to be very photogenic. VLB IRAs tend to not be because they're spread over the size of a continent. It's very hard to take a picture of that. But individual antennas are, yeah, very, very photogenic. And the Parkes telescope, when you've got all of the floodlights on at night. It looks um, amazing. Yeah. So what were you doing with it? Uh, Well, as I say, I was there for for VLBI, so we were running it as part of a network. So Mm. it was not my observations that were happening at the time. Um, I was just there as an extra pair of hands to help run the observations and make sure things were running. So it wasn't my data that were being collected at that time. But I have done observations with that uh, set of telescopes on nearby galaxies. So going back to, to, to your research, what is it you work on specifically? So mostly I study nearby galaxies, um, so galaxies that are close enough to us that we don't usually describe them with a redshift. Um, mm-hmm. So Z equals blah, blah, blah. They're, they're close enough that that becomes irrelevant because the motions of the nearby group are, are different. They're, they're sort of more significant than the redshift would be. Um, so I study nearby starbursty galaxies, so galaxies that have massive periods of star formation, and that's often due to a merger or a close interaction with another galaxy. So Jockass listeners from old have probably heard me talk about M82 in the past, which is one of the nearby starburst galaxies. Um, and it's kind of the prototypical starburst galaxy. It's one of the first ones that was recognised as a starburst. Mm. And it's really exciting because it's having a close encounter with M81, which is a lovely grand design spiral. 
and the close encounter, they've not actually passed through each other yet, but the gravitational interaction so far has actually caused a lot of uh, disturbances in the core of M82. So the reason we call them starbursts is because you have a certain amount of gas in a galaxy, and that gas is what forms stars eventually. And if you calculate the normal star formation rate of a galaxy and you calculate the amount of gas in the galaxy, you can calculate how long it will be before the galaxy runs out of gas at Mm -hmm. normal star formation rates. You look at galaxies like M82 and you do the same calculation. You look at how fast they're forming stars. You look at how much gas is in the galaxy and you calculate, well, if it was forming stars at that kind of rate for its entire lifetime, there should be no gas left in the galaxy right now. But we do see gas. So this period of massive star formation must be fairly short-lived and must have started fairly recently. Mm. So something has triggered that star formation. So M82 is a nice example. Um, there's another one in the southern hemisphere called NGC 253, which is another nearby example. The advantages of studying the nearby ones is that we can see them in a lot of detail with our radio telescopes. So we can study them quite close up. We can work out what's going on. We can see how much of the emission we're seeing from them is from star formation processes, how much of it is from accretion processes, so black holes and so on. And then we can apply that kind of knowledge to more distant galaxies out in the universe that do have a redshift that are far enough away that that's how we describe them. Mm. Um, And then, yeah, we apply the knowledge we get from the nearby systems to understand the more distant ones where we can't resolve them in the same amount of detail because they're further away, they're harder to see in detail. So in using that, we can interpolate then over the star formation rate history of the entire universe. So So as you got to higher redshift, are there any other variables you, you have to consider? As you go to higher redshift, you tend to see more examples of very active black holes. And they can, certainly in the radio, they can overpower the rest of the emission coming from the galaxy. Mm. If you've got a massive, a supermassive black hole in the middle of a galaxy, every galaxy that we look at, we go looking for evidence of, we find evidences for a supermassive black hole in the middle. Um, when you go out into the distant universe, you start to see more of those supermassive black holes being very, very active. They're mm. swallowing material from the surrounding accretion disk. They're generating a lot of radiation in the X-ray and in the radio and in the ultraviolet. And all of that emission tends to uh, overpower the rest of the emission from the galaxy. It's orders of magnitude more intense than the emission from the rest of the galaxy. So it becomes very hard to study the galaxies themselves. But we can still study the active galactic nuclei, those active supermassive black holes, the AGN as we call them for short. And again, we can use those to kind of trace processes, trace the the history of what's happened with the star formation and galaxy evolution over the course of the universe. And does the fact that these actually have an accreting supermassive black hole in the centre pumping out all kinds of energy, does does that actually do anything to the star formation rate in these high redshift galaxies? There's evidence that it does. There's a lot of discussions over how much that um, that process, that you know, the jets coming out into the galaxy, actually draws material away from the centre of the galaxy. You know, pulls out the gas, so actually quenches the star formation. Um, but there's all kinds of different models as to exactly what goes on in these processes, and it's one of those things where there's a lot of theoretical models and there's a lot of observations, and trying to tie the two together yeah. is is where we currently are with the with that kind of observations. So we've been in a, a starburst galaxy our future then given that Andromeda is hurtling towards us. Is That's that right. To us? Yeah Andromeda is moving towards us at about 200 kilometers a second which sounds quite fast um, but then if you actually work out how far away it is it's not actually going to reach us for about 5 billion years which is about the same, same time scale as what the sun's going to run out of fuel as well so it'd be an interesting time. If I had a TARDIS <laughs> That's probably where I go. I'd like to see that collision. Um, but yeah, you're quite right. In in the future of the Milky Way, yeah, it will uh, eventually become a starburst galaxy. It will merge with the Andromeda galaxy. And the individual stars are unlikely to collide because the stellar distributions, the stars kind of pass past each other. Yeah. That it's very unlikely that any two stars will actually hit because there's quite a lot of space between the stars, even in galaxies. 
But the gas distributions in the galaxy, the gas clouds, collide more like candy floss. Mm-hmm. Um, they will actually collide and the shock fronts set up by that collision will start a lot of star formation happening. So yeah, in the future, the Milky Way and Andromeda will be full of new stars forming, massive stars forming, massive stars explode a supernovae. So there'll be lots of supernovae going off. Yeah. So will we end up with a, an active core in our resultant galaxy after this collision? It's highly likely. So a lot of the time we see galaxy collisions, we see a lot of supernovae. There's a one particular example called ARP-220, which is a really nice example of an active galaxy system. And the star formation rate in ARP-220 is massive. It's very, very, very high. And it's two, what you see when you look in the radio is you see the two cores of the two galaxies. And the reason you can see them is because there are supernovae going off in those two cores on a regular basis. Mm. So if you go back and look at this galaxy every six months, you'll see another couple of supernova remnants appearing in the galaxy. It's a very, very, wow. very high supernova rate. In our galaxy, we haven't had one for 400 years. Yeah. So it gives you an idea of just how extreme the star formation rate is in up to 20. Um, so far in up to 20, I don't think there's a well, there's some evidence that there's an active galactic nucleus, but when you have galaxies colliding, then you disturb a lot of the orbits of the gas as well. Mm. So normally in a galaxy like the Milky Way, there's a supermassive black hole in the middle of our galaxy, Sagittarius A-star. Um, it's not emitting very strongly in the radio or in the X-ray because it's not currently active. Mm. There's no material falling into it. When we get close to the Andromeda galaxy, the gravitational interaction of the two galaxies will start to push some of that material out of its stable orbit and some of that, if it goes the wrong way, it will start to spiral into the black hole. And then the black hole will become more active and we'll start to see more emission from it. A few years ago, there was a gas cloud called G2, which was its orbital trajectory when we plotted it. looked like it was going to pass close enough mm. to Sagittarius A star. It was going to get swallowed by the black hole and would create a period, new period of activity. And there was a massive monitoring campaign. Um, and as so often happens in research when you go looking for things like this, the, the gas cloud did pass by the black hole, but not quite close enough. And there was no uh, massive burst of radio emission or X-rays from the central supermassive black hole. So disappointing. Such a shame. <laughs> that would have been so good. But, you know, there might be one on its way there now that we haven't seen yet that might yeah. hit it in a few years. So it's, it's unpredictable, most of this stuff. Excellent. So how long is it before we're going to see the Andromeda galaxy looming over us in the sky? Well, there's been some simulations. A few years ago, there was a press release from NASA, I think, that had um, some images, some simulations of what the sky will look like over the next 5 billion years as Andromeda gets closer and closer. And it will look pretty spectacular. I think in about 3 billion years, it will be filling most of the sky. So it will look very, very impressive. And star formation, this burst of star formation, will that have begun by then as well? Um, Possibly. Certainly the gravitational pull will have started to influence the galaxy by then, I would have thought. So, yeah. Well, we won't be around to, to see the view, sadly. Sadly not. Until, and well, you know, we might build a time machine by then. You never know. I'd quite like to see the view of the Milky Way from the uh, Magellanic Clouds. I think that would be... That would be pretty spectacular A really cool well. thing to see. Mm. So when you left to, to Manchester for the first time, you carried on doing the Jodcast. Why was that? Um... Partly because I enjoyed it, partly because it was a good way for me to keep up to date with the current research literature. It forced me to read, you know, a lot of papers every month. And I read them in a lot more depth than I think I would have done if I wasn't doing the Jogcast News. So, yeah, I I did enjoy it. Um, But also partly because I don't think anybody volunteered to take it over. (laughs) Um, And that's the problem with a volunteer podcast. If, you know, you do volunteer for something, you are kind of stuck with it. Uh, Well, of course, you won't be... uh... You won't be necessarily staying to do anything with a Jodcast as you're leaving this time because you've gone on to do another podcast. 
Yeah, so seldom serious was yeah because we we did enjoy talking to each other and we were, we're all still passionate about astronomy even though um, some of us have gone on to do other things. Yeah. Uh, it's still you know what got us into studying at Jodrell Bank in the first place was because we're all interested in astronomy. So mm. um, and yeah, hopefully people are enjoying our random ramblings and they are sometimes a little bit rambling because we don't have as much of a plan usually as a jocast episode does yeah. we don't have interviews um so we pick a topic or su- listeners suggest topics and we just kind of talk about it for a while so recently we did one on dark energy yeah uh and they they nominated me to talk about dark energy i don't study dark energy um <laughs> i had to go do a lot of reading um i hope i got it all right it's good though because it keeps you broad Absolutely. And that's part of the problem with, with any kind of academic research, I think, is that the tendency is to get narrower and narrower and narrower and just focus on your particular topic. Whereas, yeah, doing things like the Jogcast, Seldom Serious, other kinds of public engagement, you, you, you know you're going to get questions on the whole field from mm. the audience and you can't predict what they're going to be. So it's a good idea to keep up to date with as much of it as possible. So when do you start your new job? Uh, Monday. Uh, wow, really? That quickly? Yeah. So we're recording this on uh, Wednesday. Um, Yes, so it's it's very very soon. Um, it's that soon because it's a teaching post, and yeah. that's when the start of the academic year is. So I guess so. Yeah, it feels much earlier in, in the year than it is to mm. me at the moment. So you'll you'll be going through the doors at Preston straight into to a lecture theatre then, pretty much. Pretty much. I start Monday morning, and I go to. I think I've got a meeting with uh, human resources at ten o'clock, and then Tuesday afternoon I've got my first lecture. So wow. Um, Are you nervous? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fine. Uh, um, I've got all the lecture notes and I've been through the first few lectures um, so yeah there's the first year uh, astronomy then there's um, some first year statistics I'll be doing next semester and the foundation year maths as well which is basically sort of A level yeah level maths so we're still going to see you around you're still going to be here on Friday so hopefully we haven't heard the last of you just yet I hope not it's um, always fun to come back and record with the Jogcast yeah so maybe you'll uh, do the news for us at some point yeah I'd be happy I think to. I think the phrase if you see the phrase written down in the news this month most people hear it in their head in your voice <laughs> you know when i start recording anything now i always do a level check and that's the phrase that i use really in the news this month because i just said it so many times um, excellent yeah well the very best of luck uh, we hope to hear from you Thank again you. i'm sure we'll see you around the department but yes absolutely. listeners will try and get megan back as often as we possibly can uh, thanks very much for talking to us you're welcome thank you thanks for that ben now Charlie talks to Dr. Michelle Lochner about the classification of supernovae with machine learning. Today we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Michelle Lochner from University College London. Welcome to the Jogcast. Oh, thanks very much, Charlie. And you're here giving a talk about classifying different types of supernovae with machine learning. Um, so to start everything off, I was wondering if you could go over the types of supernovae that exist and um, why we want to classify them into different populations in the first place, because there are there are quite a few of them, and they're quite unintuitive. Sure. Well, so uh, for those who don't know, a supernova is an explosion of a star, and these are the most powerful, most energetic events in the universe. So they're really interesting and exciting to study on their own. Now, um, over the years, we've found quite a few different types of supernovae, and in fact, we keep finding new ones all the time. And the way they're classified is actually based on their spectrum. So spectrum's a bit like taking a fingerprint, and each supernova has a different fingerprint. So you will hear names like type 1A, 1BC, type 2, and all of these different types just represent what kind of elements we see in the spectrum. So actually they're, they're classified in a, in a very almost non-physical way. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what the explosion actually is. But it does turn out that there's a special type of supernova, and that's called the type 1A. 
Now, we think that this is a very different kind of object from all the other types, which we call core collapse. So I'll explain core collapse first. So core collapse is just when a, a star gets too massive and um, it starts running out of fuel and it eventually collapses in on itself and explodes in this massive explosion. Now, um, there's a different type of supernova, which is these uh, type 1As, which are actually white dwarfs. So these are dead stars, something like what our sun will probably end up like. Smaller stars that have just eventually just run out of fuel and not really done anything particularly interesting. But they happen to have, these 1As happen to have companions, and they accrete matter off of their companion. And eventually, they become massive enough that they explode in a similar kind of way to the core collapse. Now, the special thing about 1As is because they always explode at the same mass, um, we think that they should be the same kind of brightness. That makes them standard candles. These are really, really precious objects in astronomy because they help us measure distances. If you think about it, if I have, say, a 100-watt light bulb, you can figure out how far away I am by just measuring how bright the light bulb appears. And this works exactly the same way for supernovae. So, for example, in the 2011, the Nobel Prize uh, was awarded to the scientists who discovered dark energy, or at least the accelerating expansion of the universe. And they did this using supernovae. So supernovae are really crucial for cosmology. But the other types are also very interesting in terms of their astrophysics. So it's really important to be able to classify between the different types for your different science case. So um, type 1A supernovae are the ones that get all the press. And they're so clear. <laughs> you, you noted them as the cosmologist's favorite. Absolutely. But... Um, Others are important as well. And uh, you mentioned that that had presented a bit of a problem with uh, data collection for different types of supernovae. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so this is becoming more and more of a problem with these uh, great big upcoming new telescopes. So in the past, uh, what people have done is a supernova will be observed in the optical. So just by taking a few images of it and having a look at the brightness and how that changes with time. Then scientists would have a look at what appeared to be interesting objects that looked the most like 1As and then follow them up spectroscopically. So like I said before, that's a bit like taking a fingerprint. And then you can be really sure you've got the right type. You can look to see if what elements are in the spectrum and you can be sure you've got a 1A. And all the cosmologists cared about were 1As and not the other types. But now we have a much bigger problem. So new surveys are coming online, like the Dark Energy Survey is taking data now, and uh, pretty soon the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will start taking data. Now these surveys are going to find thousands of supernovae, perhaps even hundreds of thousands. And the problem is that taking a spectrum is really hard. It takes a lot of telescope time. And so um, you can't actually follow up thousands of supernovae. There just isn't enough time because these are transient events. They fade away after a couple of weeks. So what you have, what we have to do is just using the, up, the photometry. So photometry is just when you measure the brightness. So just using that photometry, we have to find a way to automatically classify supernovae. Of course, humans can't do this because A, it's very hard to visually see the difference between the different types. Um, in fact, possibly impossible. <laughs> um, but also because there's just too many, you know, there'll just be thousands of them. So this is why machine learning is a really great tool for this, because we can train a machine to automatically classify the different types. So machine learning, the name implies that you've got to do some teaching. It's not as simple as just feeding it lots of data and uh, getting results out. How, um, how does it work? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there, there are very clever algorithms that can uh, try to automatically find different classes in your data. 
Um, but they, you know, they, they tend to not be as good at it as we are. <laughs> you still need a human element when it comes to machine learning. So what I would, what I'm talking about and what I've used in my work is something called supervised learning, which is by far the most common form of machine learning. And that's where you have some training data. So if, in our case, it would be our spectroscopically confirmed supernovae. So we have some of them, some fraction of the data set that we do actually know the types. And from that, we, we can label them ourselves and then give that to the machine learning algorithm. It will learn the right pattern to be able to automatically classify new objects that we don't have spectroscopic confirmation of. So that's, um, and that's the most common type of machine learning. So, you know, for example, Google's image recognition algorithm is very famous. Mm. Um, and uh, they've, they've been making a lot of progress on it in recent years. But they had to get this massive data set of human classified images. So you had thousands of volunteers going through this and deciding with each image, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a car, etc. And once you have a big enough training set, then you can train the algorithm to automatically classify things that it hasn't seen before. And there are lots of different types of algorithm that can be used. Uh, they've all got really crazy names. Could you, could you <laughs> name a few for us? You don't have to go into too many details about sure. what involved. But. Sure, yeah. Um, there are literally hundreds of algorithms out there. So the oldest and probably most, most popular and most um, commonly heard of algorithm is called a neural network. And uh, this is really the first idea behind machine learning. And it's quite cool because it's basically trying to create an algorithm that emulates the brain. So you build a, a network of neurons that talk to each other and basically do this, this uh, non-linear operation that takes your input, so whatever your, your data is, and eventually gives you an output, which would be the class. So neural networks are very popular, and uh, they're kind of making a comeback with this deep learning yeah, stuff I mean, that everybody's heard about. Speaking of Google, um, I've had a look at a piece of software, a very strange piece of software called Google Deep Dream. That's right. Um, which uses the same sort of techniques, uh, generates images based on images that you feed it in. Have you had a play with it? Yeah, I have. Actually, I wrote a blog about it. Um, it it's, uh, it's quite fun. So um, it's a bit complicated to explain exactly how it works, but it's this, it's this incredibly deep, complex neural network called a convolutional neural network that Google uses to classify images. And what they started doing was started feeding the output back into the input and just letting the network iterate and seeing what came up. Mm. And uh, you get, you these, get really these really crazy images. Yeah, yeah it's so incredible. You can, so I, I gave it the, the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background, and I saw what happened to it. And eventually a whole bunch of dogs came out of the image. Mm. I, gave it, <laughs> I gave it a picture of the Jogcast team and all the people's faces seem to be replaced with dog faces. Yeah, eventually, so. dogs I think are very popular. Dogs and cats are probably the most common things in the data set. <laughs> Is that just because there are lots of dogs and cats on the internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, uh, um, I think if, if you give the network something it's never seen before, there's quite a high probability it's going to classify it as a dog or a cat just because it's seen so many of those. <laughs> um, are there any sort of constraints to using this sort of machine learning for your work? Sure. I mean, it's uh, one of the, the biggest problems with using supervised learning is it can't tell you when it's seen something new, right? So um, especially for LSST, this Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, we're going to find it's going to have about 10 million transient alerts. So that's 10 million new transients per night. So that's a huge number of objects. And many of those will be things that we probably haven't really seen before. 
Now, if you use a supervised learning algorithm, it can only classify things based on what it's already seen. It can't classify anything new, so it just simply won't know what it is. And if it sees something new, will it force a classification, or will Generally, it just discard yes. it? It has to classify it as something, mm. so it, it will it will pick something. Now, there's a couple of diagnostics you could try and use to pick up when that happens, but the algorithm's really not designed to alert you to new things. You have to do something a bit different. Uh, to do something like that, yeah. So I guess you're working on fail-safes for things that aren't quite classed in the best way. Yeah, so I mean, right at, right now, at the moment, we're mostly interested in just getting a, a, as reliable a data set as possible classified mm. with the types of supernovae that we know. Um, but for example, we don't, we haven't really characterized the core collapse supernovae very well. You know, we have these other types, 1BCs, type 2s, but um, we don't really have a lot of data on them, at least as cosmologists. So um, one of the important things is being able to characterize those different types of objects because things are definitely going to go wrong when we start taking data with LSST. And uh, we don't have as many, not only because there's a bias in observing them, but are they also rarer? Are they rarer events in the first place? Well, type 1As are brighter. They're intrinsically brighter objects. So um, if you go to higher redshift, so looking back uh, further back in time and further away, um, you tend to see more 1As than anything else just because they're intrinsically brighter. So they're, they're, they, they're more common in that sense. Um, but in terms of supernova rates, the type 2s are a little bit more common. Uh, but because you can observe a larger volume, it sort of balances it yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I was wondering if you could go back very quickly to the LSST. Could you give us a, a little bit of a, a spiel on what that's actually going to be? Where sure. Where it's going to be based? Sure, sure. Um, it's, a, it's an upcoming telescope. It's a 10-meter-class it's a telescope. It'll be, uh, it'll be built in Chile. It's led by the US, but it's an international consortium. So interestingly, the UK actually just recently bought in as a country, which means any UK astronomer can get involved in LSST if they're interested. Um, and uh, it's quite an amazing experiment because it's going to do so many different case science cases. So normally we, we build these instruments, uh, well, not normally, certainly in cosmology, we normally build instruments for a particular task. So like the dark energy survey is very focused on trying to figure out what dark energy is, and um, everything is geared towards that. But LSST is going to do everything from near-Earth objects and, and uh, asteroids and uh, variable stars and all the way to cosmology with weak lensing, supernovae, etc. So is this telescope in the same way that the SKA has a, an iterative design process that's pretty much driven by the science that you want to do. So the, yeah, the design of the telescope right now is fixed, and it has it has been designed to in order to meet these different science cases. Yes, um, but what's interesting is that the survey strategy is not yet fixed. So it's not you know you've got this great big telescope and it, you know it's wonderful, but the question is how do you observe the sky? It's got a very large area of the southern sky that it's going to view. And, um, you know, the question is, do you come back to a particular patch of sky every night? Do you try to observe quite evenly, in which case you'll only go to a patch every, you know, week or so? Um, so how do you actually observe? And the different science cases actually want different kinds of strategies. So one thing we're doing as a community is working on a white paper to try and figure out what's the sort of optimal strategy that will keep as many different science cases as happy as possible. And that's a really <laughs> thick piece of paper. It is. It's currently 240 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the um, the machine learning algorithms. How are they performing so far? Are they doing their job correctly? 
Oh yeah, we're getting really excellent results um, with our uh, for this particular problem with this particular data set we're working on. So one of the one of the interesting things we had a look at um, is the thing that I actually think is the hardest step in machine learning, which is called feature extraction. And now the reason why you need to do this is because it's very rare you can just put raw data into a machine learning algorithm. Most of the time, they you know it won't be able to re- recognize different classes. So what you have to do is extract useful information from your data and give that to the machine learning algorithm. So we looked at five different machine learning algorithms and also three different ways you could extract features from your supernova data. And we definitely found that some perform much better than others. But overall, we get absolutely brilliant results. Um, So, you know, saying that really this is it's very very possible to do supernova classification for lsst with just the photometry data so what are the three different ways that you can uh, you can classify so we looked at um there's one approach which is the most commonly used approach which is to fit a model now that model is actually built empirically from um a previously measured supernovae it's called a salt 2 model um, and you can fit those parameters and use those to to classify uh, your supernovae. And that works extremely well, which is, you know, already known to be a, a good way, at least to find 1As specifically. Mm. Um, another thing you could do is to also fit a model, but instead of using pre- previous supernova data as templates, you could just fit the sort of generic parametric model. So just saying, well, we know what the shape of the light curve is generally. We can write down an equation to define that. And uh, use those parameters as features. That it turns out doesn't actually work as well as the other methods. So you know it's better to rather use the supernova information you have, or to do something completely model independent, which is the third approach, which was a wavelet decomposition. So wavelets are really cool, and they're used a lot in signal processing. It's a way of basically extracting both frequency information from your signal, but also some kind of shape or spatial information from it as well. So you get a lot of information from these wavelets. And um, they also you, we didn't need to use any prior knowledge about supernovae. So that means this is generally applicable to other types of signals, like tra- other transients. And the great thing was the using wavelet coefficients as features works really, really well. It works just as well as the templates. So it's great. Now you've got these two different methods. One relies a lot on what we know about supernovae, but does very well. One doesn't use any previous information whatsoever and also does very well. So now you have this really great cross-check. And uh, of the five different machine learning algorithms we looked at, there's uh, simple algorithms. I'll throw a few, few names out without describing them. There's things like Naive Bayes, K Nearest Neighbors. Those don't perform that well. But we found good performance from neural networks, things like support vector machines, and excellent performance from these really cool ensemble methods, um, which are very, very powerful techniques and overall always perform the best. So you mentioned right way, way back at the beginning that um, type 1A supernovae are almost identical wherever they are in the universe, purely because of the physical process, which is they get triggered when they hit a certain mass. I'm guessing that means that they're much more likely to fit a template than another type of supernovae where the mass could be variable, the amount of elements, all sorts of things could be different. So do you find that it's easier to, with templates, see the type 1As than to see the type 1Bs? Yeah, so um, that's definitely true with, with the templates about them fitting the 1As much better. And that's what, what the machine learning algorithm uses to discriminate. It finds 
that for the the core collapse supernovae, that model doesn't fit very well. So the parameters are a bit strange, and uh, it's pretty easy to distinguish between those types. But I wouldn't say that that there it's necessarily better than say wavelets at distinguishing um, the one A's. Interestingly, there's one particular type of supernova called a one B C. It's still a core collapse, so it's not one of these white dwarfs accreting matter off a, a binary uh, off a companion. But for whatever reason, they do look a lot like 1As. So the 1BCs are usually the things that cause us a lot of problems. And um, the, the the template fitting approach actually does the best in terms of distinguishing 1BCs from 1As. So maybe there's some more investigation to go into there about um, different methods being more applicable for different types. So um, is the aim to make machine learning better than humans at classifying these sorts of things? Is that the overall goal? Could they ever reach that? Place. Well, I mean, for this problem, I would say machine learning algorithms are better than humans at classifying them, mm. right? Because if I showed you two pictures of these light curves, the yeah. photometry data from supernovae, you couldn't tell the difference. I couldn't tell the difference. It's very much a statistical thing. It's very much these very subtle differences between the light curves that the machine learning algorithms are picking up that you as a human simply can't. So in this case already, machine learning is better than humans, it's not better than spectroscopic follow-up, that's for sure. If you if you take a spectrum, then you know for sure what, what the type of the supernova is. But in this for this particular problem, it's not something that can be solved by human beings looking at light curves. It's mm. just not one of those problems. So this doesn't necessarily lend itself to a citizen science project then? Um, no, for this particular one, I would say not. There are other cases. Um, so citizen science projects are particularly great for image recognition because that is still a really hard problem for um, for machine learning. Uh, so although there's a lot of progress going on, of course. So um, what would be a int- more interesting citizen science project would probably be trying to classify general transients, perhaps from images or perhaps from other types of data, and especially this problem of trying to find something new, something mm. unusual, something different, because the only way a machine can tell if something is new is if we tell it what defines a new thing. You, yeah. you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So we still, we, we kind of have to know what we're looking for, but while we don't always. While right? they're smart in incredible ways, they, they still have to follow rules. And if you don't program exactly. the rules, then they just, they don't know what to do. Exactly. Mm. So um, could we go back and ask, uh, what, what sort of features do you actually use to classify these supernovae then? Is it the overall brightness, for example, or is it that the length of the light curve? So the, the, the feature extraction methods that I was talking about with the different model fitting and the wave of decomposition, those are the things that we use. Um, in the models, um, they're cap- they are capturing information like the overall brightness. They're cap- the most important pieces of information is actually the shape of the light curve mm. and specifically the, how that shape changes in different filter bands. So you can observe a supernova in different colors. I mean, these are, for anyone who has a telescope at home, it's exactly like a, um, putting filters on your telescope. It's the same, it's the same kind of filters. And um, that's crucial. Having that color information is absolutely crucial. So LSSC is going to have six different filters. Uh, and really what you're looking for is how that shape changes between the different filters at different times. So you might find um, early on in, in the, just after the explosion, one filter is much brighter than another, but then later on the other one takes over. Think subtle things like that is what the machine learning algorithm is looking for. Mm. And um, when is the 
LST going to be up and running? When are you going to expect your first batch of data to analyze? So I could be wrong with this, but I think it's supposed to be first light in 2020. And um, how many supernovae did you say that you were expecting? Uh, that is also a hard question because it depends on the outcome of this observing strategy discussion that we're going on with now. But it's going to be of the order of at least tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of good quality usable supernovae. And how long will it take your algorithms to plow through all of that data? Well, the algorithms are actually surprisingly fast. Um, so, I can exa- for example, I can analyze a 20,000 object data set in a couple of hours. Of course, I do have access to some pretty good supercomputing uh, requirements. But um, in, t- in comparison with other astronomy projects that might take weeks to run, this is really going to be done in the order of hours, at most one or two days. Oh, that's the astronomer's dream, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And finally, can I ask, um, is there any sort of exciting science that you hope to get out of classifying all of these supernovae, for example? Yeah. Different amounts of supernovae in each type there are. Or... Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, quite apart from the, the really great cosmology that you can do with the type 1As, um, there's people who are, work on supernova physics that I think this, this huge data set will be invaluable for them because... Prior to now, that we haven't really had very much core collapse data, and um, there there are interesting questions like there's correlations between the type of galaxy, uh, type of supernova, and the host galaxy properties. So you find certain types, uh, certain types of supernova in you know early type galaxies versus late type galaxies, things like that. So if you've got a really nice big statistical sample, you can start understanding those quali- those uh, correlations, on, start understanding how environment affects supernovae. And the other really interesting science case that I should mention that LSST will be great for is these exotic objects called superluminous supernovae. Ah. Now, these were discovered quite recently, and I think we're only there's only of order 10 to 20 that's been found so far. But they are incredibly bright objects. Uh, and so you can see them at really high redshift. You know, you can spot these almost out to redshift 2. And um, they're really interesting objects. They're, we're not really sure what type of supernova they are. We're not really sure if it's core collapse, if it's something more like a 1A. Um, we don't really understand the variation in the population. We don't understand the rates. And LSST is just going to find a phenomenal number of these. Um, so that will be really interesting, these kind of exotic new objects that we'll, we'll understand a lot better with a much larger data set. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for that, Charlie. Now for the part of the show where we discuss things that don't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So my odd and end this month is Galaxy Makers, um, which is a website created by scientists from Durham University. And it's something that's actually very close to my work, which is partly why I thought I'd mention it. And it's basically a website where you can go on and create your own mini universe just by, um, so it kind of talks you through how we simulate the universe, how scientists actually go and do this. And it's using data from the Eagle Project, which is kind of a world leading set of mini universe simulations. And you can basically go through and see all of the ingredients we have to include to try and create a realistic universe. So things like dark matter, baryonic matter, so that is everything that isn't dark matter, dark energy and that kind of thing. Also things that seem a little bit less obvious. So things like how much uh, matter is thrown out of active galactic nuclei and how much they heat the surrounding gas. 
and how much wind comes off supernova and stuff like that. And you can adjust all of those things and see how it changes the universe that you produce. Um, and I love this because I quite often give talks now about how you simulate a universe. And I have wanted this tool for so long, but not had the resources to actually do it myself because it's very comp- computationally expensive to run but they've done it for you. So I'll include a link to the page on the website. Um, it's dead easy. Have a go and see if you can build your own universe. So you get to kind of play God. Yes. Yeah, that's it's cool. amazing. Yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds that's, that's like tremendous fun, actually. I kind of want to do it right now. Yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> recommend a go. Mm. Oh, I'm just thinking uh, my recent research actually hooks directly into some of the stuff that you're talking about. So you're talking about what astronomers would call AGN feedback, which mm-hmm. is... You dump matter onto a black hole, that matter gets very hot and starts producing huge amounts of X-rays and other high-energy photons and also produces jets. And astronomers think that's what shuts down the formation of stars within uh, the centers of galaxies because you have this environment around the black hole, the AGN, just either blowing out gas or photoionizing it. My research at the moment is using ALMA to actually uh, look for hidden uh, star formation. And I'm actually discovering that there's maybe more star formation in some of these environments. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I love talking about AGN. It's a real nostalgia for me because I actually did my master's on AGN jets. Ah. And uh, I miss them. They're really, really cool. They're um, kind of like big space volcanoes and they do really interesting things. And they mm-hmm. just... Um, I didn't really look at that. And that's the other, that's the other thing. I mean, that's, that's always what I think about astronomy. Like George is talking about his research, which is star formation. And I was looking at the same objects, but like a completely different field altogether. I used to do things to do with the magnetic fields around the jets and stuff. So it's funny how even when you're broadly looking at the same field, there's just, and then what Monique is talking about is like how they affect the, you know, the universe. And, it's even um, bigger. Yeah, yeah exactly. Bigger. So like everything that we do just has so many different layers and dimensions. Oh. No, I I even got invited to a conference recently where it's like, uh, which was actually talking about just sort of feedback to star formation in general. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I I even had to ask, well, it's like, what specifically would you like me to talk about? Because it's like, I've been working on stuff which is kind of related, but I haven't actually addressed this topic specifically yet. Exactly. And yeah, they said, yeah, no, that's okay. It's like, uh, just go ahead and talk about the stuff you've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Both both like uh, the newer stuff and stuff which I did sort of wrapped up a couple years ago, which was like on how uh, dust is related to, uh, or emission from air still, or dust is related to star formation. Uh, well, that sounds that sounds really cool. And if if incredibly computationally intensive, it's uh, giving me a headache to just <laughs> even yeah. think about what those computers must have to do. <laughs> yeah, I should say you're com- you don't need a good computer to do it because they do all of computation on their end. So, so just an internet connection. Yep, that's all you need. I hope it's faster than some of the stuff I actually use in my research. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Well, it's, yeah, it's like uh, there's one website I use called Starburst ninety nine, which is named after the year the model was made, and it's. Painful. Uh, yeah, no, it's, yeah. people have updated them all several times since, but it's like, it still has that Starburst 99 name, but I put in for a simulation, I can like take a day before a simulation, and then I'll get an email that says, your simulation is now ready. Yeah, I, uh, well, what I've been learning about running simulations, you know, my, my supervisor is all like, oh, you know, you should include as many time steps as possible and uh, <laughs> make the graphs look as good as possible. What I'm learning is it's actually kind of the opposite. You need to you need to figure out, um, you, you're kind of going from making them look as bad as possible. What's the <laughs> minimum quality you can get away with um, so that, you know, you can still have a result which looks presentable, but it takes the least amount of time to run. <laughs> so I should say, actually, the simulations they ran for this 
took 30 million core hours. So that's wow. the amount of time on CPUs. And um, they created about 500 terabytes of data. Oh my god. That's, that's oh, crazy. so did they just reference the uh, data that they have to put they, something together? So the way they create the website is they will have ran everything already, but they've okay. done it in a massive parameter space and then you can explore the parameter oh, space. Nice. Because you would never ever be able to run these on the fly. It's not doable. No. They run on a big supercomputer in mm-hmm. Durham, mm-hmm. which has... 6,000 cores. It's a nice way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So what I'll be talking about is in some ways much more simple. Basically, uh, astronomers found the Philae lander. So it's, people recall, back in 2014, the uh, Rosetta mission uh, had been in orbit around Comet 67P it had a lander called Philae, which was supposed to drop onto the surface of the comet and then uh, use some harpoons to stabilize itself on the surface and to keep itself latched onto the surface. Uh, the landing didn't quite work out, and the Philae lander bounced, and astronomers knew that it bounced somewhere and that it was uh, someplace in the dark, and so... The solar panels weren't getting enough energy, and therefore it wasn't able to operate for an extended period of time until at least the comet got closer to the sun and it got more illuminated. But just earlier this month, the uh, Rosetta mission, uh, taking some additional photographs of the surface of uh, the comet, actually found the Philae lander, and it's uh, basically in a ditch. <laughs> Or the oh, cometary no. equivalent of the crack between the cushions in your sofa. Oh. So it's, uh, it's in a dark place, but it's fairly unmistakable that it is the Philae lander, uh, unless you believe that extraterrestrials somehow also left their own spacecraft on this thing as well. Mm. Uh, mm. But it's... Um, no, it just fell into a crevice that uh, is uh, typically dark Aww. and well shaded, and therefore it wasn't operational. Poor um, So at least the people who uh, operate this mission know what happened to the spacecraft now. And hopefully if they ever plan another mission uh, quite as crazy as this one, they can uh, avoid some of the mistakes in this one. It's like uh, it's like when I drop my phone down behind the couch, and it's like my arms just aren't quite long enough to reach it. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's there, and I can see it, but there's nothing I can do. I imagine it must be a bit like that. For, uh, for you must have a very large sofa. <laughs> I got very short arms. I'm like a T-Rex. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Monique, I think you had an actual science Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, was just, I was wondering how they found it, because I have this image yeah. of, like, some scientists having to stare at pictures <laughs> of the comet for so long and i mean i don't know um so we'll, we'll link to the picture of course but i stared at that for ages and i couldn't find it i could have i was staring at another patch on it swearing that was fillet and it wasn't it was just a rock so it's, it's not uh, obvious where it is so while monique does a lot of simulation work some of us actually spend a lot of time staring at pictures for a very long time so i can perfectly understand how they found this thing <laughs> Mate, do you have the picture sounds there? very tedious that's all it is it no, really no, is yeah. you, you you just um you know in just a lot of my work i just spend time spending long amounts of time staring at images 
you know, it, it could images which are like a thousand by a thousand or a couple thousand by a couple thousand pixels. Uh, sometimes I have like these things called image cubes where it's like uh, two of the dimensions are dimensions on the sky and the third dimension is like frequency. So you have like the sky imaged at slightly different frequencies and maybe like a couple hundred frames of the sky at slightly different frequencies. So I have to stare at that and find out what's happening and actually find the source. And um, sometimes the source doesn't look very pretty or easy to understand. Sometimes it's a very nice little point in the center of the galaxy. And then sometimes you have stuff rotating. And, or there's even, a, if we get Adam on, we should talk to Adam about his stuff. Since uh, he works with protostellar objects where it's like uh, they aren't even radiating light yet and gas is still collapsing in on the objects and so you're looking crazy for the bit that isn't emitting light in that case i mean well you get... but but he's looking at millimeter radiation where it produces a lot of millimeter radiation and spectral lines which are mm. but it's like in such a wacky structure that it's uh difficult to understand what i find is you just get really good at spotting what's not like the others so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking here i'm looking at the image here and um uh, I mean, it's basically just all these grey rocks. Uh, and then just off to the edge, you can see what, at first glance, you would almost think was like... If you, if you had taken the picture itself, you'd be like, was that a smudge on the lens or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it but it looks different to the rocks. You're like, oh, yeah. Um, so I can see how if you were really used to looking at those pictures, yes. oh, you'd, you'd hone in. You'd be like, oh, look, mm-hmm. that's different. That's not a rock. That's that's not the rocks. That's I can tell you thing. that they've probably already out any smudges that appear mm-hmm. on. Uh, well, yeah, but I'm just saying that's kind of what it looks like. Um, so what I'm taking from this is that astronomers are awesome at spot the difference. Yeah, we really uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, again, when I was doing the AGN, um, I was doing polarization studies. And for that, like I would plot... Um, you'd plot the polarization angles as little short little bars across mm-hmm. the source emission and they'd all be kind of pointing in roughly the same direction but you'd be looking for bits that were maybe pointing in different directions and you get really good not only at spotting ones that pointing were pointing in different directions but deciding whether that was really pointing in a different direction or just kind of noise or just <laughs> wrong <laughs> you'd, be, you'd get very good at just I mean obviously you have to test everything uh, and check everything properly but you'd become quite adept at just um, by eye looking at it and saying okay that's real I think this is interesting that's just noise mm-hmm. um, you know it's a uh, it's probably bad for your eyes and your brain, but <laughs> but good for science. <laughs> Finally, um, I am reporting to you about um, SpaceX and their latest exploits. And I know we talk about SpaceX a lot because they do a lot of really interesting things. It's really cool. It That's is why. really cool. It is really cool. I mean, yeah, okay. Um, I talk about SpaceX a lot because... I know some people who are really into SpaceX and they tell me lots of stories about (laughs) it. Um, But yeah, no, it is pretty cool. Um, So you may have heard about um, Elon Musk's most recent tragedy on the launch pad, um, (laughs) where his rocket, which um, was carrying a lot of very expensive equipment, um, uh, exploded um, while they were doing some tests in preparation for launch. So that happened last Thursday. And... um, that was uh, that was very dramatic. I'm not sure if you've seen the videos. Some bigwigs are very upset. Um, I believe that uh, Mark Zuckerberg had some kind of interest. There was some satellite that was going to be bringing internet connectivity to Africa or something on there. And there's um, or more specifically, Mark Zuckerberg to uh, Africa. 
Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> there is an Israeli company asking for a, a refund of £37 million from Elon Musk's firm or a free flight, which I think is very funny. It's like, you know, <laughs> we guarantee your money back if we blow up all your satellites. <laughs> um, but, 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 um, most interestingly, I think, is recent footage of the launch, which has emerged, which shows a UFO <laughs> flying past the launch site just before the explosion. I think this is very serious and something that the scientific community should be uh, looking very closely at. So we'll link you to the video. Uh, and in it, you can very clearly see something flying past the rocket, something flying past the rocket as it's sitting in the launch pad, and then the explosion happens. I mean, now... I'm not saying it's a bird, but it kind of looks to me a bit like a bird. <laughs> it does look like a bird, yeah. But birds are boring, and the one thing that you learn when you talk to people about UFOs <laughs> is that they're more interested in the more obscure explanation than the more boring explanation. The, the more boring, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, I think and, you can see wings, like, kind of? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I guess the only thing that might make it not a bird is it looks quite big. True. Uh, but then it could be closer to the camera. It's hard mm-hmm. to well, see. Well, th- this is actually one of the things that I think it was Philip Glass who uh, made up uh, a set of rules about how the general public's going to uh, interpret UFOs. Or he certainly wrote a lot about uh, this Didn't topic, too. Did he but write what... music? A different Philip Glass. Okay. Yeah, I say, the one you're thinking of has written operas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Philip J. Class has written a lot of stuff about this type of stuff with finding UFOs. And one of the things which I remember reading in one of his books was about how people can't quite adequately judge the distances to objects very well, especially if they look like relatively unfamiliar objects. I had a similar experience once. Uh, so uh, for a year and a half, I volunteered at Swallow National Park West. One day at the visitor center, uh, there was a guy who came in who claimed that he had seen a condor, which is a very big bird, and it's also very rare. They're mm-hmm. endangered, and he was very insistent that he saw a condor. Now, I knew that there were lots of turkey vultures, which are actually much more common and much more boring, which like to hang out. Uh, in the park, they like to sort of uh, ride the winds going over the mountains and huh. just sort of sit there and relax, look for some uh, carrion somewhere. But he was insistent they saw a condor. And uh, uh, part of the thing with interacting with people in the park is that we were told, okay, well, it's like uh, you just sort of try to lead people to a correct answer. But if they're insistent, you just sort of let them go with the wrong answer because they're supposed to be enjoying themselves. You're not supposed to be like, you're not supposed to be correcting bad knowledge <laughs> like it was a classroom. But it's like, I'm pretty sure he saw a turkey vulture and they just thought it was much fur- uh, further away and therefore much larger. Okay. So it sounds like a very similar situation with this thing where it's like they saw a bird but yeah. it's probably uh, probably a turkey vulture <laughs> the, the sea turkey vulture no it's probably a white bird right so um, sea, 
She kind of looks like a black sort of flyy thing in oh, the image. It's not white, although you wouldn't be sure because it's yeah. backlit. Okay, so it's so really hard to tell anything from this footage, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, some kind of big bird. Most likely not a turkey vulture, no. Um, no, but it could be a cormorant or... Uh, oh, um, cormorants are weird. Oh, do you see them when they're standing up in the trees and they've just got their wings kind of hanging out to dry? They look very creepy. This conversation's diverged, hasn't it? <laughs> just, just a, a little bit. bit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, maybe some kind of bird. Um, I mean, or who knows? Uh, the the other thing that crossed my mind that's a little bit more conspiracy but still not, like, I'm not saying full-on sabotage, but maybe it was a drone. Maybe. A drone seems reasonably likely, mm. not even in that it's sabotaging it. It could be someone flying onto video. What's exactly. Like, People are getting very cheeky with those drones now, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, flying them around airports and flying them around rockets. And when is it going to stop? That's what I want to know. I would still go with birds because just it's a more prosaic explanation and also much more likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know the planes have had many more issues with birds than they've had with drones uh even in recent years with drones increasing in popularity mm. we have lots of examples of like uh planes having issues with bird strikes but we don't have that many examples of planes actually being taken down by drones yet 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 um but I mean, I I still love conspiracy theories, yeah, and I, I really like taking the um, approach that Matt Taylor from the Rosetta Mission takes. In that he he, well, I remember when I interviewed him, he was saying that he likes conspiracy theories because it shows at least that people are interested. Yeah, which is true. Like they're interested enough to get their to let their imagination exactly. run away with them. Exactly. So why not? And you know what? I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory if they really are trying to sabotage you. I just feel like someone should point that out. <laughs> there is always a chance. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Um, uh, I, I would still say go look at the boring explanation first. And if you can't eliminate that, yeah. use Occam's razor and say it's probably the boring explanation. And we're also like really trying to figure out why the thing blew up in the first mm-hmm. place because people don't want this to happen again. Well, no, no. I mean, and, it's, it's uh, it is looking a bit bad right now for SpaceX. They really shouldn't yeah. have things blowing up. <laughs> and if they did something wrong with the uh, mechanics or the fuel, for example, they don't want to like go blaming it on like a uh, drone trying to disrupt their flight if they're actually going to repeat the uh, issue again. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know. Um, Maybe Elon Musk needs to use less explodey materials to make all his products. I I see. I see that the (laughs) Tesla cars are also exploding a little bit. Are Um, they? Yeah. Well, there was one that happened there a few weeks ago. Um, So famously, there was a Tesla car whose battery exploded. I mean, no one was hurt or anything. And and Mm then a similar thing happened happened again recently. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you know, and and the Samsung, they've recalled a bunch of Samsung phones uh, whose batteries were exploding. I was thinking Mm -hmm. maybe Samsung and Elon Musk, they're getting their batteries from the same shop. And now for somebody who isn't going to buy into conspiracy theories at all in answering your question, here are Renee Brennan and Charlie with Ask an Astronomer. Sadly, Renee couldn't be with us this month. He's jet-setting across the world at the moment. This month, we are joined for Ask an Astronomer by Benjamin Shaw. Hello. So, let's crack on with the first question. Owen on Twitter asks, How can we tell the difference between different types of redshift? for distant active galactic centres. So the first thing to probably explain with this one is where the idea of redshift and the Doppler shift actually comes from. So if we have a gas and we heat it up in the lab, we'll see that the gas starts to emit light. But if we use a spectrometer, something that only allows you to see light of a particular wavelength, 
hydrogen gas, for example, will only emit a specific set of wavelengths. It won't emit across the whole band. And so you'll see an emission line at exactly 656.3 nanometers, which is the hydrogen alpha line, which is a common line used to observe the sun, for example, safely through eclipse glasses or whatever. Um, and it'll emit like a few other specific wavelengths as well. However, that hydrogen alpha line being at that particular wavelength is predicated on the fact that both you and the gas are in a stationary frame with respect to each other. So that means that the gas and you are static, neither of you are moving with respect to each other. If the hydrogen were moving away from me sat in the lab with my spectroscope, I'd see the hydrogen alpha line not at 656.3 nanometers, but I'd see it at a longer wavelength. And the shift in wavelength is determined by the rate at which the source is moving away. Conversely, if the source were moving towards me, you'd see H alpha at a shorter wavelength. And this is known as the Doppler effect, and the same effect you observe when an ambulance or a police car goes past you with its siren on, and you hear the drop in pitch as it, as it moves away. And this is because depending how you're moving with respect to a source, the rate at which you receive successive wavefronts changes. So imagine we're in a tennis court, for example, and I'm throwing tennis balls at you. We're both stood still, and if I throw one ball per second at you, at a speed of one meter per second per ball, you'll receive a ball every second. But if I start walking backwards away from you at, say, half a meter per second, you'll receive a tennis ball now every two seconds. So the rate at which you receive the balls decreases. And correspondingly, if I were a light source, the rate at which you would see successive wavefronts also decreases. So you would measure the light source as redshifted, even though the rate at which I'm throwing them, throwing the tennis balls, or the wavefronts, hasn't changed from my perspective. Now in astronomy, there are a few different phenomena that can cause redshift. For example, simpler Doppler shifting can be caused by a source moving towards or away from an observer, such as a star. And we see this effect in binary systems, for example, where a star is moving towards us for one half of its orbit and away from the other. This effect is how we find many exoplanets. As a planet moves around a star, it causes a star to wobble to and fro, and we can measure this wobble as a star oscillates through being blue and redshifted in time with the orbital period of the planet. Similarly, nearby galaxies might be moving towards or away from us. The Andromeda galaxy, for example, is heading towards the Milky Way, and so the hydrogen gas, or any other gas in that galaxy, is blue-shifted as a, as a consequence of that. Now, we can extend this idea to include the expanding universe. As the universe expands, objects that are further away from us appear to be moving away faster. This isn't because they're moving across space relative to us, rather that they're being carried away by the expanding space itself. So going back to the tennis ball analogy, this is like you standing at one end of a conveyor belt, me standing on the conveyor belt, someone switches it on and now I'm being carried away from you. And like before, as the distance between us is increasing, this time not because I'm moving across space relative to you, but because I'm being carried away by space itself. As a consequence, you receive tennis balls at a lower rate than I'm throwing them. And this is called cosmological redshift. And it's an observational phenomenon we see in very distant galaxies. And it's useful for calculating the rate of the expansion of the universe. For example, if we measure the brightness of something we know very well, such as a, an accretion-powered supernova, by knowing its brightness and measuring its redshift, we can get a value for the speed of the expansion of the universe. Now, there's one more type of redshift that occurs due to the curvature of space due to the presence of masses. In general relativity, masses cause space to curve. So take a mattress, and if I roll a ball bearing, say, across the mattress, it will move across the mattress in a nice flat 2D plane, forwards and backwards, left and right. Now, if I take a great big bowling ball and put it in the centre of the mattress, the bowling ball causes the mattress to be depressed into a third dimension, up and down. And now if I try and roll the ball bearing across the mattress, it will follow a curved trajectory in three dimensions. Now, say I wanted to roll a ball bearing away from the bowling ball, so it starts in the centre of the mattress near the bowling ball, and I want to roll it towards the edge. It would lose energy trying to climb out of the well that the bowling ball has created. And so if you were catching a ball bearing at the edge of the mattress, you would measure its speed at the point you capture it as less than it began its journey at, because it's lost energy climbing out of this well. 
Now, this analogy breaks down due to a consequence of special relativity, which is that light always travels relative to space at the same speed in a vacuum. And so if a, mass, if a massive object emits light, that light will not slow down as it leaves the gravitational well of the object. However, energy is still lost, and its loss manifests as an increase in the wavelength, and we call this increase a gravitational redshift. And this is only usually measurable near very massive objects. For example, if there's hydrogen gas near a neutron star, in an accretion disk or a pulsar wind nebula or whatever, then the H-alpha line that we talked about before would be shifted into the red due to the gravitational field of the neutron star. Now the questioner asks how we tell the difference between these phenomena, and the answer to this largely depends on the nature of the object you're looking at. Gravitational redshift is in general a really small effect, and we only usually need to consider its effect near massive objects like black holes or neutron stars or white dwarfs. To get an idea of the gravitational redshift effect, we need to consider something called the Schwarzschild radius of a massive object. So th this is the radius an object would have to be at a given mass in order for the escape velocity to be equal to the speed of light. So for the Earth to have an escape velocity equal to the speed of light, it'd have to have a radius of about 8 millimetres. So it's, the Earth is much bigger than its Schwarzschild radius. For a person whose mass is, say, 100 kilograms, to have an escape velocity equal to the speed of light, your mass would have to be compressed into a sphere with a radius of about one-tenth of a yoctometer, so that's 10 to the minus 25 metres. To understand the contribution to the redshift of a system by gravitational effects, we need to consider how many times bigger an object is with respect to its Schwarzschild radius. So a nebula, for example, is trillions of times larger than its Schwarzschild radius, and so the effect of gravitational redshift on light moving away from a nebula would be about one part in a trillion. But a neutron star, which is a sphere about the mass of the Sun, but about 20 kilometres across, its Schwarzschild radius is about 2 kilometres. So it's only 5 or 10 times larger than its Schwarzschild radius, and so the contribution is much higher, as high as 1 part in 10. So if you're looking at a redshifted nebula or a redshifted galaxy, you can be fairly sure that the redshift you're seeing is not gravitational. So coming on to cosmological redshift, how do we tell whether something is being carried away by the space expanding, or whether it's just moving relative to us and space? For example, the motion of galaxies in a cluster. Well, at very large distances, say hundreds of megaparsecs, the redshift is predominantly cosmological. For more nearby galaxies, such as those in the local group nearby us, the group of galaxies we're in, normal everyday Doppler shift dominates the redshift. The difficulty comes when a galaxy is at a distance where the cosmological and the Doppler redshift contribute roughly the same amount, and you have to carefully disentangle the contributions from each effect. In this case, you'd need an accurate measure of the distance to the galaxy, such as a thermonuclear supernova, a pulsating variable star, and perhaps when we've better calibrated them, gamma ray bursts as well. So if you can measure the distance independently, then you, and you have an accurate model for the expansion of the universe, and you include contributions from things like the Earth's orbit around the Sun, and the Sun's orbit around the Milky Way, and then in principle you can measure where your redshift is coming from. That was great. So disentangling different redshifts is something I've never really thought about before. And for our second and final question this month, Jacqueline on Twitter asks, Given Pluto was demoted on the basis of it having other stuff in its orbit, shouldn't we demote Neptune on the same basis, given Pluto crosses its orbit? Well, that'd probably be a controversial thing to do, I think. But to, to answer this question, we should probably go back to why Pluto was demoted in the first place. So back in uh, the early 2000s, a bunch of other stuff was found near Pluto. We suddenly became sensitive sensitive enough to see very small objects towards the edge of the solar system. And the first of these was Eris, um, an object called 2003UB313, and it has a moon called Dysnomia, and it threw a real spanner in the works because it's actually bigger than Pluto. And it's very nearby Pluto. All these things are clustered in a, a thing around the edge of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt, so a little bit like the asteroid, but more icy and with a much bigger radius. And a lot of other objects began to get thrown up as well, all these little 
planetoids, whatever we wanted to call them at the time, lots of things sort of orbiting together at these great distances in the outer solar system. Now, this caused a problem primarily because we these things weren't really disentanglable from Pluto, the, at least the larger ones. And so we were faced with the possibility of having a lot of stuff in the outer solar system, new planets in the outer solar system. And we needed really something to call them, because if we just said Eris is a planet, Kuawar is a planet, all these other things are planets, Sedna is a planet, then we're potentially going to have a solar system with tens, potentially hundreds of planets in the solar system, which is going to be a nightmare for textbooks uh, in schools. It's going to be a nightmare, really, when we're trying to, you know, gather statistics of exoplanetary systems, you know, what we call planets really matters in those cases. And so a set of criteria were devised by the International Astronomical Union um, in the mid-2000s that effectively go out of their way to exclude Pluto from being called a planet. We knew we wanted to keep the first eight as planets, and we knew we wanted to exclude these other smaller objects that seem to be clustered together. And so the IAU came up with a bunch of things that keep Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune as planets, but exclude everything everything else. And those three criteria were, it has to be in an independent orbit around the Sun, immediately excludes things like moons and asteroids that are caught around planets. There is a caveat to that, but we'll come to that. The second criterion was that it has to be massive enough to have pulled itself into a sphere. So the bigger, the, the more massive an object is, the more self-gravity it has, and so the easier it is for it to pull itself into a sphere. It's its lowest sort of surface potential, and it's an effect we call hydrostatic equilibrium. Pluto passes on these two. It fails on the third one. The third one, it needs to have swept its orbit clear of other material. Pluto shares its orbit with a lot of other stuff. A weird and diverse collection of moons, but it also shares its orbit with a lot of other Kuiper Belt objects as well. It's not isolated in space the way the other planets are. And so Pluto failed on that condition. Although Pluto then got demoted to the status of dwarf planet, which was a bit of a controversial thing, and there are still movements out there that try and get Pluto reclassified as a planet, and I think that's fair enough. But what it also did was it made us look a little bit closer at the asteroid belt and take things like Ceres, which is the largest of the asteroids. It's in an independent orbit around the Sun. It's massive enough to have pulled itself into a sphere, uh, but it still shares its orbit with the rest of the asteroids in the asteroid belt. And so that elevated Ceres into the status of dwarf planet from just a large asteroid. And so, there, you know, there, there was something to gain from this. So the Pluto people can be, the pro-Pluto people can be, a, you know, rest easy a little bit knowing that uh, a previous asteroid has now got dwarf planet status. The questioner asked specifically about Neptune. Now, the problem with Neptune is that there is a point in Pluto's orbit at which it's closer to the Sun than Neptune is. Uh, and this is because the orbits aren't sitting in a nice sort of ever-increasing circles. Pluto's orbit is slightly squashed. It's inclined by about 17 degrees to the ecliptic, the, the flat plane of the solar system. And so there is a point in its orbit where it, where it becomes closer to the Sun than Neptune. However, Neptune's orbit is its own orbit. Nothing lives in Neptune's orbit. Plenty of stuff lives in Pluto's orbit, and that's where the distinction is. And that's, you know, it's the same with every other planet. Every other planet has its orbit to itself. Now, if we were to say, if we were to demote Neptune on these conditions, we'd have to probably demote things like the Earth as well, because the Earth, from time to time, crosses the orbits of comets, for example, and that's how we see meteor showers. A comet comes into the inner solar system, leaves a trail of stuff, the Earth crashes into it, and we see a meteor shower. If we were to do that, we would have to say that the Earth has not swept its orbit clear of other material. But it has, because Earth pretty much has its orbit to itself. And so on that basis, I don't think we can declassify Neptune, because there may well have been other stuff living in Neptune's orbit when it formed, but it massive, you know, it rapidly cleared it out. Pluto didn't do that. It's not massive enough to have kicked other stuff out of its orbit. And so Pluto shares its orbit. Neptune doesn't. The fact that they cross each other doesn't really matter. There is a caveat to this, which we don't really consider. Planets that are orbiting around anything or moons that are orbiting around anything have these things called Lagrangian points. The Earth has five of these. 
There are areas in space where if you were to place an object, it would stay there in lockstep with the planet. So, for example, there's a, a Lagrangian point called L- L1 between us and the sun. And if you were to place a, a spacecraft there, it would orbit around the sun in lockstep with the Earth. And there's another one called L2 on a line from the sun, Earth, L2. But there are also these other ones that trail and lead the planet as well. Uh, around the sun and they're very very stable and in massive planets like Jupiter they tend to capture stuff there's a lot of things called Trojan asteroids living in Jupiter's L4 and 5 Lagrangian points and they go round and round with Jupiter so in that respect Jupiter hasn't cleared its orbit of that material but it's not intercepting that material generally that material does live there Jupiter has no mechanism by which to eject it because these Lagrangian points are very stable so when astronomers say a planet has to have swept its orbit clear to be considered a planet, it explicitly ignores the presence of Trojan asteroids. So to sum up the questioner, um, no, we shouldn't demote Neptune. Neptune has its orbit to itself. Pluto does not. Another great answer. Thanks, Ben. Okay. And thanks for that, Renee and Charlie. And now on to feedback. So we've had no feedback for this episode from post or email or Facebook or Twitter but uh, we thought we'd talk about uh, some of the uh, written comments that we got back with the survey. So there are other Jodcasters who are going to be working on presenting the quantitative information, so the uh, various percentages of uh, people with educational backgrounds and uh, where they are and whether or not they uh, speak English as first language or uh, etc. But uh, we thought it would be good to present some of the uh, written comments and we had quite a few. We had over 200 people uh, respond to the survey, and for each of the sections where we asked for written comments, we seemed to uh, get over 60 responses. So we had quite a few comments which were uh, uh, about the general presentation style of the Jodcast. So, for example, just to read off some of the comments, quote, I really like the informal, chatty delivery, like I'm at Chadobank in a friendly meeting. Or Fiona is, in fact, funny. Her laugh is infectious and brightens my day. Thank you for that. That's really nice. Um, yeah, we've had some really lovely comments. Um, one I particularly liked was, um, I hold you guys at least partly responsible for me signing up to an OU physics degree. I now have no spare time. <laughs> also, is there a chance of getting Fiona to do voice nav? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the sat nav company asks me to record for them, you know, I would I would do that. I would enjoy that. That would yeah. be nice. Yeah. Fiona like got <laughs> quite a few specific uh, comments back in this survey. I did, yes. Specifically um, about her. Nobody specified me specifically. <laughs> oh, you feeling oh, left out? <laughs> Actually, I think the reason that happened was because we brought it up at one stage in the Jodcast. Um, uh, Joe Zunz was uh, who works here was asking me to do some uh, a stand-up comedy routine, and I was saying, "Ah, oh, God, no, I'd never do that. I don't, you know, find myself." funny per se and uh, then then we were discussing that in the in the Jodcast and uh, Charlie I think threw it out there he said oh you know if you want to leave a comment about whether or not you think Fiona <laughs> is funny please do so and uh, that's and apparently quite a few people left comments yeah so thank you <laughs> maybe you should do that routine maybe then. I should yeah. do that routine although quite there were a couple of people who weren't quite as happy with the uh, levity of her show uh, no that's true yeah actually so we had a, a couple of um, so we're going to look at both the positive and negative comments, but um, we had two particular comments that we wanted Fiona to read, <laughs> but to see if she could do it without laughing. Um, so over to you. <laughs> see, as soon as you tell me not to laugh, that's what's going to happen. Less, less laughing and joking. Uh, too much random giggling. No, it's never random. I'm always laughing at something. 
so yeah, I don't know what to tell yet. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think we're going to apologize about having fun when we're recording, but we will do our best to make sure that at least all of our episodes are understandable and clear. Yes. We, we did get a lot of positive feedback yeah. from more laid back uh, approach to presenting. And uh, quite honestly, I would pre- rather present science this way than in the more formal and stuffy. Mm-hmm. I mean, often science can be a pretty serious game and uh mm-hmm. I, I think any any opportunity we ever get to not take ourselves that seriously uh for me anyway it's so always welcome. good yeah, yeah it's nice well for that matter it's uh, i'll be uh going to a conference later this month and presenting my science results and i don't plan on being this stuffy at all yeah no <laughs> i mean i think it's good it's really good actually that um uh i feel like generally science is loosening up a little bit it's mm-hmm. no longer this kind of um like you said this kind of stuffy very formal um uh affair which i think mm-hmm. is nice it's good one of the other aspects of our podcast we got a lot of feedback about was about the level of science that we present in our podcast and a lot of the feedback that we got was very supportive of uh the level at which we're presenting stuff um, yeah, for example, someone said, not always being easy to understand is not really a negative scale comment. It is more about indicating my ongoing learning, which is a good thing. The show often allows me to develop a wider appreciation of subject areas that are not often covered in other podcasts or sites. And it's one of the many reasons I listen to your program. That's lovely. Yeah, that's really nice. And it's, uh, it's good. Uh, I, I think that that person is really admirable for um, being so open to challenging themselves. And, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people... Um, uh, myself included, just get so frustrated when we don't understand things. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, uh, well, that person's not the only one. Either. Yeah, absolutely. So we also we have lots of comments like that. Yeah. So, like, I disagree that the Jodcast is always easy to understand that, but I feel that is a good thing. There's too much easy stuff out there. The very reason I like the Jodcast is because it doesn't talk down to our listeners. Uh, yeah, and uh, another one here. What I enjoy about the Jodcast is how you pull in people who are prepared to engage seriously about their work and explain such that a layperson can grasp what they are involved with. It takes things a step further than Sky at Night. Um, so that's uh, the, that's really nice. That's, yeah. um, I'm glad. Uh, I presume that's referring to the interviews. So um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad but- those are... Those are entertaining. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just happy people like the fact that we present stuff at uh, the level that we present. And this Mm -hmm. would be the level that I would want to present stuff. A lot of the stuff in my personal research, the uh, Fiona and Monique can comment on their research as well, but a lot of the stuff that I do doesn't get covered in uh, basic astronomy books for the general public. I mean, it's like I work on looking at how stars form Mm -hmm. uh, in galaxies a lot, or I look at the interstellar dust within galaxies. Oftentimes, you just get a mention of, yeah, there's interstellar dust. uh, But, you know, it's like to actually go into more detail on what the heck I'm actually doing involves discussing stuff much more than what you get yeah, in the basic. I, I feel like for me, I mean, a, a lot of what I do is probably not even what people think of when they think of an astronomer, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we don't, we don't peer through telescopes and we don't all, um, you know, we, we don't all even do observational work. And uh, I think it's really nice. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, which is great, you know, showing the more kind of um, picturesque side of astronomy which is lovely but uh i've always liked how in this show we focus on maybe other aspects uh, of our work that don't always get as much attention Mm -hmm. so another aspect of the show where there were a lot of very strong opinions was the night sky 
And uh, a lot of this actually focused a lot on the southern night sky. Mm. So we did have some positive feedback on the night sky. Uh, yeah, Haratina Magasano's part is my favorite. Very relaxing to listen to. The southern night sky is a delight. Invariably, I close my eyes and let her voice wash over me with her joy of astronomy. So that's lovely. But it's, uh, we also had a lot of feedback just, uh, saying that, uh, Haratina's, uh, pieces were just very long or that the, uh, night sky segments, uh, just weren't that interesting to people. Yep. Um, for example, one person said, sadly, the night sky is not something I make much use of as I have no memory. And on the rare occasion I get round to getting the telescope out for a clear sky, I would search the web for what I need to look for for that night. Uh, which I think is perfectly understandable. Um, we also had a comment on the um, southern hemisphere night sky. Sometimes I find the southern hemisphere night sky a little long. I enjoy the stories though, but for me it isn't so relevant as I may never get a chance to see so many of the objects. So, as I indicated, there were a lot of comments on the night sky segments in particular. A couple of things to point out is that we're expecting Claire Bretherton uh, to come back to uh, doing the southern night sky for the Jodcast. And so uh, the Southern Night Sky is going to go back to an older format instead mm. of the uh, format that Haritina Mogoshanu uh, has been uh, presenting uh, for the past year. So uh, things will change a bit with the Night Sky, but still we had a lot of feedback on this. So if you had additional comments about the Night Sky in the Jodcast or suggestions and what we could do with the night sky please let us know we're currently looking into uh, various options on uh, things mm -hmm. that we could potentially do with the night sky in the future uh, such as uh, perhaps doing it as a separate podcast mm -hmm. maybe doing it a little bit earlier than the start of the month uh, so that people can get to it earlier, or maybe even doing it as a separate podcast feed. It currently appears in iTunes as its own standalone podcast feed, as well as appearing within the main show. So if you have feedback on uh, the Night Sky and what you'd want us to do with that, or, you know, both positive or negative feedback about the Night Sky, or if you have any feedback on any of the other things we've discussed... Although I think if you uh, write in that you really don't like Fiona's giggling, she's just going to laugh at you some more. <laughs> that is exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> but you're welcome to do it anyway. <laughs> and if you want to. Um, so oh. that's it for our um, listener survey um, for this month. Uh, as, as George said, we'll have some updates over the next few months once we've got some of our stats back. But we did also get some feedback on iTunes, where Kevin, IC designer, said, Please stick to the science. The Gabfests and political griping do nothing for me. We think this is related to our Brexit episode, um, and that was a little bit more political than we normally tend to go. But I thought it was worth mentioning this comment, because whilst we are a science podcast, I think it's important that we cover the different aspects of science um, and the things that affect science research. And Brexit is going to be very important to what it's like to be a mm -hmm. researcher. And I think, I mean, we could probably all attest to this, but in the kind of meetings and conferences I went to shortly after the result, it was all that people talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So it's as much about reflecting what the environment is like in research as well as the science that's going on. And I um, think it's really important that yeah. we cover that. Yeah. Virtually all of astronomy research these days, with maybe the exception of a little bit of research in the United States, is publicly funded 
Yeah. Uh, it's, we're all part of government institution here at the University of yeah. Manchester, for example. We're all publicly funded yeah. by the United Kingdom government. So it's um, major political events are going to have an knock Absolutely. We don't exist in a bubble, you know, and um, mm-hmm. we're human beings and we do science in the world. And mm-hmm. so well, and so the world has an effect on the science that we do. And I think whilst we'll, we'll try and make sure that the politics never takes over the science, when it's appropriate, we'll mention a little bit of politics. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the only place where uh, politics uh, affects science before if, uh, people go back to uh, much earlier uh, this year, uh, there were, or maybe the December extra episode, they could catch me talking about, uh, talking about my experiences in Hawaii with the 30 mirror telescope there. Mm-hmm. And there are major, uh, political issues, uh, that came up with the construction of that telescope. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is yet another example of how politics got involved with mm-hmm. astronomy. Um, uh, in fact, I mean, for, since since the beginning of astronomy, really, politics has been getting involved in astronomy. <laughs> for example, the way Galileo was censored when he was yeah. trying to tell everybody about gravity, and they've always—I um, don't think they've ever existed independently of each other. I think it's it's very difficult to take away the human aspect away from science research. Okay, so we've uh, touched on some uh, rather sensitive points there as well as uh, some points where uh, people seem to have a lot of strong opinions about the uh, Jodcast in general. So if you would like to provide any feedback on that, or if you just want to provide any other general feedback, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks to Dr. Michelle Lochner and Dr. Megan Argo for the interviews. The editors were Andy May, Charlie Walker, and Benjamin Shaw. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, Jod on. on.